Um, I was thinking on my way to town, actually, I was thinking about what this would look like, um, that there be a limited number of you here in this room, and of course, millions of Americans watching on TV, on the live stream, I'm sure. Um, and, and I kind of wanted to speak of the, the elephant in the room, or of the, you know, 100 people who aren't in the room. Uh, this has been hard, huh? Um, I haven't done a conference since February, so I may be a little rusty. Um, my practice went nuts, though. I've got like a three-month waiting list um, because we're scared and because we're angry. And um, people don't know what to do with that. And we live in a culture now of fear and a culture of anger. And it's very much a part of our hearts now. And, and rather than just jumping into a parenting conference, I kind of wanted to, to touch on that a little with you all. People asked me, like, John, how have you made sense of it? Well, first... The key is you gain 15 pounds, okay? Mark that down, all right? Psychologist tip number one. Um, it took me about till June to figure out how I wanted to land. I had to do some work on my own anxiety and my own anger and helplessness. And then one day it occurred to me, I thought, you know, my citizenship is in another kingdom. And my king is on a throne. And he has seen thousands of countries rise, fall, culture shift, diseases and pain, and he still reigns. And he is where I belong. Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body from its humble state that has to wear masks, into conformity with his body of glory by the power which he exerts even unto subject, and it, it, to subject all things unto himself. He tells us, see what kind of love the Father has for us that we are called the children of God, and so we are. And Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. So in the context of that, fellow citizens of the kingdom, let's talk about our kids, let's have some fun. But God just had to touch on that, given that we're all in this. Um, I'm glad you're interested in parenting. Like I say, um, you know, like book sales dropped. People aren't interested in parenting during those seasons. They're like, I got to teach homeschool. You don't care how to take care of my kids. Anyway, so the fact that y'all are back, I'm, I'm, I'm relieved and delighted. And we're going to talk about parenting. I know that your children appreciate your being here. You're giving up your Friday night, you know. This is usually when I'm watching The Mandalorian, okay. But you guys, you guys are here. Your kids should appreciate that. One couple came up to me at a marriage conference once and they said, um, we were leaving the house, and our teenage daughter goes, oh, my gosh, where are you guys going? And we said, to a parenting conference. And she said, good. All right, so I'm sure that they, they appreciate that you, that you were here. I, if you remember, and we're here before, I'm a clinical psychologist. And basically what I do is therapy, mostly with adults, depression, anxiety, marriage, work. 
Regarding children, mostly what I do is parent consultation. I don't work with children themselves so much because I have found there's an enormous amount of power that we can have if I bring parents on my treatment team. And so the issue of educating parents as to how to engage kids almost took the place of the child therapy that I used to do, um, which will become obvious in this conference and in the book. I want you to know what you're doing. Um, Norman and I have been married 36 years. We have three kids, all of whom have jobs and none live at home, which qualifies me to be a parenting expert. All right. Uh, we, have th- we have two grandsons. Um, so basically what I wanted to do tonight was I have like six or 800 slides of them, and we're just going to go through them. And if you all have questions, we can do Q&A about that. Uh, so I'm glad to be talking about parenting with you all. What I wanted to do in a conference and with the book is basically, I've never really liked parenting books. Um, So I wanted to write a parenting book I liked. And I wanted to give parents what they needed in order to teach them what they need to be good parents. But you can't stop there because we live in a culture in which us parents are going to put a bunch of pressure on ourselves. If you give me a bunch of new rules about how to parent, I'm going to then put a ton of pressure on myself and I'm going to be worried I'm going to screw them up for life. And I'm like, dude, enough. No more pressure. So I want to write a book that tells you what your kids need but also sets you free. In other words, knowing what to do when you fail. So that's kind of what we're going to do this weekend too. We're going to be asking seven questions that parents ask about what their kids need. How do we teach our kids about love and forgiveness and, and, and understanding God and making wise choices? And how do we keep bath time from becoming another dumpster fire? And I want to spend the, the time with you all answering your questions about that. But again, if that's where we stop, then you won't get free because it'll just be another load of parenting rules for you to follow. And I don't want you to have that. I want you to secondly know what do we do when we screw it up. Because if you're anything like me, you will. And I want that to stop being scary. So those are our two goals. I want to tell you all I can about what I think kids need to be whole and to make life work and to be in God's image. How do we equip them? I want you to be heads up with that by the time that you leave this weekend. And I want to talk about failing as a parent and surviving it, which I'm actually an expert on, so I'll be a good resource to you um, in that that particular area. So we're going to go over all seven questions tonight. Friday night for a parenting conference is a little bit of a buggy whipping because I want to give you kind of the big picture, but hang in there. We're going to look at two of them in more detail tomorrow, making sense of discipline, how do I get my kids to do what I want, and how to help my kids learn about love. Um, And we'll do as much Q&A as we can. So um, before we move on further, though, um, let me ask about y'all, age groups. I, um, how many of you have zero to four, like little little bitties? Those of you at home, let me see those hands. Uh, Five to 12, teenagers. Okay, that's a good spread. Usually parenting conferences are way weighted toward the zero to four. Um, And maybe that's why y'all are at home. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I like to distinguish between three different kind of 
eras of parenting, stages of parenting, and the rules are kind of different in each one of these. So as we talk about parenting, I'm going to have to tweak our information a little bit depending on where you are. There's sort of like um, different things you can accomplish, um, whether you're in attending or parenting or a de-parenting stage. By the way, the fourth stage is empty nest, which I call MLK parenting. Free at last, free at last. Anyway, um, anyway, there are different jobs and different things you can do in the different seasons. Uh, for instance, with attenders, those little biddies, you're not really thinking a lot about teaching them about you know, forgiveness and money management. You're just trying to keep them fed and safe and keep them from gnawing on the power couplings, right? You know, and what I hear a lot from attender parents is, you know, well, you know, you're giving us these parenting principles. My life is basically just chasing them across the Walmart parking lot, you know. So I want to I tweak your focus for the little biddies is how we can apply it to that more hands-on uh, season of parenting. Um, there's super amazing, important software being written during those early years. So it's super important years, but it can feel chaotic. And a lot of parents of little kids are like, just give me hope that it's not always going to be this way. Or if he's still, you know, melting down every time we get him to do anything, are we doing something wrong? We'll try to speak to y'all, all right? Parenting age is basically more straightforward parenting. By five years old, or so, they're going to start internalizing your parenting. This is, this is bread and butter parenting. Put them in timeout, throw baseball, read their spelling words, and it's going to be pretty straightforward. And then we have de-parenting, where we should be with teens, where your goal and theirs is going to be to get rid of them. Okay? And so the rules are going to change again. Voila. Okay, so in order to look at what kids need, we're going to have to keep in mind the different ages. And I'll try to address, you know, each of your ages as we go along because we got to tweak a little bit all right so three stages seven questions let's punch it you ready the questions are am I screwing up my kids surprisingly enough the answer is no and I'm going to tell you why all right number two how do I make sure my kids feel loved this is about helping build a sense of real mattering inside of them, groundedness inside of them that feels like a security, uh, that feels like a, an ability to be connected and whole. Regardless of what you might be thinking about me, I can kind of feel loved. We're going to talk about this one in detail tomorrow, all right? How do I get my kids to do what I say? This one tomorrow too. Um, in other words, how do we get them... Uh, to make sense of, of obedience and discipline. God calls it wisdom. Choose ye this day. Number four, how do I help my kids learn to respect authority? As we'll say later tonight, this one's different than just obeying, okay? This is about the heart ability to submit. You're going to hear me talk a lot about hearts this weekend uh, because we're Christians, <laughs> And we're not here just to raise obedient little robots, though that might be nice, kind of an after-workshop class, we could just do that. Um, we want children whose hearts understand authority, who value authority, who can bend the knee and get off the throne in their life. How do we make sense of that heart level? Super important. Number five, how do I teach my kids to be strong? In other words, this is what, what it means to have a sense of self and some resiliency and some power and to know who they are and to take care of themselves. 
I see so many young adults who hit adulthood and they just feel incompetent. They still feel like a child in an adult world. How do we help our children learn resiliency? Um, number six, how do I protect my children from pain? You can't. <laughs> Next one. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, the real question is how do I help my kids deal with pain and make sense of pain? How do we walk into parts of our children's lives? This is so relevant for us this season. And unfortunately, that doesn't mean Christmas anymore. It means this season of wackiness. How do I help my children deal with a world that's frightening, with fear, with pain, with vulnerability, with change, and develop the ability to manage the bad stuff in life with poise and with groundedness? God calls this humility. He calls it grieving. It addresses the issue of forgiveness. And seventh, how do we help our kids best know and love God. In other words, what can we do to help consciously nourish their relationship with God? All right? So we're going to look at these, um, all seven of them tonight, so take a deep breath. And one of the reasons I'm doing this is because, A, I don't think you're going to get this big a picture anywhere else. I've tried to look and I haven't found it. I want you to have a, a model for what humans and adults need as, um, as adults. Remember, I'm a, I'm a therapist to adults. And basically, they come to see me with deficits in their personality. And the way they get better, the way the symptom goes away, is by helping them develop these abilities that might be missing. So one day it occurred to me, hey, this would be a great model for parenting. Think about the things that kids, that adults need to be able to do to make life work and teach kids that. So these are the things that your children need in order to do life. They also reflect God's image, I believe. And I want you to have this because I want you to parent. Most parents parent kind of reactively, kind of playing whack-a-mole. Like, what's this? what are we going to do now? Well, he just did this. I don't know how do we handle that. And you're always sort of on your heels trying to respond. I want you to have a grid and a map and a picture for what kids need so you can be making informed decisions with them. I want you proactive. I want you to have a grid for what kids need so you can look at a situation and go, huh, Jimmy's hitting his brother. I wonder what we need to do with that. Is Jimmy hurting? Is there emotional issues? Do we need to just set limits? I want you to have a grid for that, all right? This is also gonna help you when it comes to what I call blind spots. You know how each of your kids comes out of the womb and they're just kind of different? You know, one comes out sweet and cuddly and they have the love thing down. But they're the ones who are getting picked on in the playground. We need to swing in with them more in the strength category. You get it? One of ours came out and she was all independent and, you know, self-sufficient. We had to lean more into the love category with her. So I want you to have a model and a grid. And that's the reason that I made the handout because I want you to have it all laid out there real plain for you. Um, and like I say, it's the model of the book too. So, All right, let's look at our seven. Number one, am I screwing up my kids? We have to address this one first. Let's look at where we are here. <clears throat> Let me put it this way. I personally never liked going to parenting conferences or reading parenting books. I'm not even sure I ever went to a parenting conference. And the reason I did, did not, is because um, when I did, I always felt kind of like I did when I went to my financial advisor, you know? And he's like, well, all you, it seems like all you guys need to be doing is 
putting aside another five grand a month, and I think you'll be fine. And I'm like, great, you know, this is really helpful, man, thanks. And, and I sort of walk out feeling like a bigger failure than I walked in. So um, one thing I don't want to have happen for you this weekend is for you to leave this parenting conference feeling like you got seven bullet points for how you're screwing up your kids, okay? Goal number one, I don't want you to come out of here being more burdened. Let me go cultural for a second. We live in an age that I call an age of psychological legalism. In other words, since our culture has lost a lot of its moral foundation, the new morality is not out of ethics and morals. The new morality is psychological. It's emotional. I mean, what is the biggest sin you can do in our culture? Step on somebody's toes, offend them, be insensitive. It's the new Puritanism. You're pilloried in the public square. And they are far more shamey and legalistic than the Puritans ever thought about being. All right? Our culture is very, very rigid in that sense. You, you cannot do something wrong relationally. Okay? So apply that to parenting. And I was talking to this about this long before the woke movement. This has been our culture for a very long time. Apply this to parenting and you get what I call anxiety parenting. And that is parents who live their lives with their children with the sense of, oh my gosh, I better do everything right with my kids. They're going to grow up to be, you know, codependents or have, you know, emotional problems or be dysfunctional. And then they may write a tell-all book about our family called Family of Fear. And, 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 and then it's going to become a Lifetime movie with Lindsay Wagner as you, you know, and it's, this is sort of what we're looking at. So in the context of everything else that we're talking about um, this weekend, remember this. Just like the gospel, parenting has got to start with grace. We're starting the same place God does. If we're going to mark parenting iniquities, then which of us is going to be able to stand? <laughs> Think about what the Bible does. It tells you how to live, and then it tells you where to run when you screw it up. That's what we're going to do. So here's how that works. Secret of the universe. Parenting fundamentally is not a performance. It's a relationship. So if you're here to learn how to, this is not a parenting advice seminar. If you're here to learn how to do the technique of parenting better, you know, I'm sorry. I'll let you down. It's a relationship. Albeit a relationship with people who say you're unfair and throw up on you and take your money. But it's a relationship all the same, right? But what happens in relationships when you mess up? What did we say in our marriage conference last year? What, what do you do when you mess up? What do we do? We swing back in. We fail and repair. We handle it together. And that's what we're going to do with our kids too. This is a relationship, not a performance. I'm not here to teach you how to be a better parent. I'm here to help you learn to, to create something great with your kids. Okay, A bunch of fallen people living together and loving together. That's what makes great kids. Your kids don't need perfect parenting. They're, your kids need you, warts and all. That's the point of the book, how to be you as a parent. The fun thing is that the research actually backs this up. There was a guy in the 20th century 
uh, most of the 20th century, uh, named D.W. Winnicott, and he did longitudinal studies on child development. And he watched how parents parented, and then he lived long enough to watch how those kids turned out. And he went and followed up on the kids who had had, like, perfect parents and how they were doing as adults. And actually what he found out was that the kids who had had perfect parents were kind of weird. I mean, how weird would you be if you'd had perfect parents and then went out and lived out there? <laughs> so then he went and he found the kids who turned out to be the coolest adults. And that's a technical term that we use, cool. Um, and, he, and, he studied, and he went back to sort of go, you know, how, how did these parents raise these cool kids? And he found nothing remarkable. They loved their kids. They engaged their kids. They dropped the ball. They came home tired from work and yelled at them. They repaired it. But they were engaged, and they tried, and they were people with their kids. And in the, in the psychological literary research data, he called them good enough parents. Goal number one. So here's our mantra. And it's the, the defining principle of our parenting, and it's going to spread throughout our whole weekend. And if you get nothing else, get this. And I want you to get your grandmother to needlepoint it and put it over your cupboard, and it is this. The only thing better than a perfect parent is a humble parent. A parent who has a relationship with his kids. A parent who can try and engage. And you know what? A lot of times you're going to mess it up and you're going to fail. And you're going to hear a lot, some of my failures tonight. And you can read about a lot of them in the book. And, and, and that's great news both for us and for our kids. Um, it's, being good enough is the best thing for our kids. Winnicott did not come up with the notion of good enough parenting because he wanted to make parents feel better about themselves. Hello, he was British, okay? He came up with the notion of good enough parenting because it's the best thing for the kids. It teaches them that love is stronger when it engages failure and is repaired. Our love is strong enough to where we can weather our limitations, yours and mine, okay? So you win both ways. It's a floor cleaner and a dessert topping. And if you don't know that reference, then we can't be friends. All right, so more on that all weekend long. Number two, how to make sure my kids feel loved. We're going to talk about this one in depth tomorrow, so I'm going to be a little skimmy here. But, of course, you can ask questions about it if you want. But in the background of all that grace, let's do some work. Um, how do we teach our kids about love? Now, when I talk about this kind of love, I'm not talking about who loves you, baby, schmoopy, schmoopy, okay? It's more core than that. The kind of love we're talking about here is more operating system than that. What I'm referring to is the kind of love that is that grounding that sustains human beings. Okay? God created us to need to live grounded with an internal sense that I am loved and I am seen and love a bowl. And I can, I can share that with him and with other people and with myself. That kind of love that's kind of a battery pack that I carry inside that sort of sustains us. Even if you don't like me, I feel that grounded love. I carry it with me, all right? Kind of the opposite of insecure, you know what I mean? So how do we teach that? We'll talk about this a ton tomorrow, but two ways we do not teach it. One is we do not teach it by coddling. 
Welcome to our culture of parents, y'all's culture of parents and mine too. Um, you know, you kind of give your kid everything they want and go to every single ball game and make sure they're always happy and then they're going to feel loved. And that actually backfires. Um, nor is it about approval and praise, like, oh my gosh, you did good. Look at how you ride your bike like an Olympian. You're a special snowflake, not just a snowflake, a special one, all right? That's called adoration. That is not love either. So how do we teach love? One of the things we're going to talk about tomorrow is that the bottom line of teaching grounding love involves simply this, living in such a way that says, kid, what is important to you, what matters to you, what it feels like to you matters to me. I think about it, I try it on, I talk to you about it, I don't discount it. Now what we'll say more tomorrow is we're going to do this in two ways. We're going to tell them about this and we're going to show them. So first tell them. We don't need to get all psychological here, it's not rocket surgery. You got a mouth, use it. <laughs> Let's tell our kids that, that we love them. Um, I want you sometimes to take their face in your hands and say, do you know how happy you make me? Look them in the eyes and tell them how they delight you. As we'll say more tomorrow, and we need to weave this into the marriage conference, but one of the most powerful ways to say I love you is to talk to another person about the way they affect me. It makes me so happy when I see you. Whit likes to read, my, my three-year-old grandson. And he sits with the book and goes, I love this. And I say, I love when you read. All right? This is how you affect me. Huge way in which we tell love. I love you is sweet. That's a one-trick pony. Okay? We can go further than that. All right? All right, secondly, we're going to show them. Here's the secret there. There's a difference between loving somebody and acting lovingly. In other words, I have clients all the time who say, I'm, I don't know why I'm so depressed. I know my parents love me. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure they loved you too. But maybe they didn't know how to do love. In other words, I've always loved plants. But I didn't used to know how to take care of them. So I'd buy a plant take it home, take it to the office, and it would die. So I'd go back and get another plant. And pretty soon the plants all there knew me. They're like dead man walking. You know, whoever's going out with John is going to die soon because John doesn't know how to do love to plants, all right? There's a difference between loving somebody and doing love and, and what our children experience, what we do, how we live with them is going to be the most powerful voice of love, and we'll talk about what that looks like. Um, but a little throwaway here before we move on and talk about it more tomorrow. How do you show someone else that you love them? Here's a, a simple way of looking at it. I mean, it's not really complicated. Doing love, acting lovingly to a child is really no different from acting lovingly to anybody else. How do we do love with someone else? You guys don't need a parenting conference. You know this. Basically, we try on what it's like to be them. 
And we let that matter. That's everybody's love language. The greatest psychologist said, love your neighbor as yourself, okay? So in your marriage, your wife says, oh, babe, I'm so glad you're home. The children have been driving me crazy all day. The unloving thing to say would be, well, you should have tried my day. Wish I could have just stayed home all day and, you know, don't say that. The loving thing to do is to try it on. Oh, babe, I know it's incessant. As Norma used to say, keeping a baby for one day is easy. <laughs> the rest being implied, that they don't stay for just one day. Anyway, same with your kids. They have a world. Your kids have a world. Try it on. What do you think it would be like to live in a world in which everybody around you was two to three times taller than you? Like, what, what if you lived with two 18-foot giants? huh? And one of them cooked your food, another one made you eat it, you know? What would that be like? I want you to try on their little world and think about it. I remember um, one that hit me between the eyes was my, uh, our oldest got diabetes when she was 13. And it was a scary moment. We took her to the hospital, sent the sisters to grandma's house, and everything got stable. We sort of, okay, we're going to survive this. We're going to make sense of life with diabetes. Okay. And so I go to the grandparents to get the little two. Bonnie's about five at the time. And so I'm driving home. Bonnie's in the back seat. And I hear her little voice say, Daddy, is, is Callie going to die? I'm like, no, baby, no. And she said, well, then why do they call it diabetes? All right, I want, you to, I want you to try on their little world. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. When I try on your world, it screams that you matter. I mean, we get to teach our kids about love. What could, be, what could be cooler? But before you go, I know y'all. I know how you're thinking, because I think the same way. Before you go from this topic, loving your kids is great, Cox. That's awesome, man. But what if you're more like me? What if you totally drop the ball sometimes when your kid needs loving kindness? And you come home from work and you're really tired and you yell at them. Or you turn around and that four-year-old is coming back from the, from the refrigerator with a whole gallon of milk, which they proceed to drop, and it's like, you know, like that. And you go off on them. Or those two boys are fighting again, and you come in, and you're the scariest monster in the room. What do you do then, Mr. Psychologist, huh? Well, let's start applying our freedom. That's why we went first. The only thing better than a perfect parent is a humble parent. So what are we going to do now? You're going to screw up. You're going to yell. You're going to be a jerk. You're not going to show love at all. And then you're going to swing back in. And you're going to repair. And you're going to say, man, I was way out of line. I know. I, I mean, I, I, I scared y'all. And I was mean and scary. I have some growth to do there. I don't want to treat y'all like that. That's on me. I am so sorry. Now look what you have done, parent. You have turned your total screw-up into a moment of deep humility and intimacy with your child, which is the love that we are talking about teaching them. You get it? God's strength made perfect in weakness, mischief managed. This is the gospel, folks. This is 
gospel applied to your, fam- your family, and, and you win and so does your child because you were a screw-up. See what I mean when I'm saying I want this to set you free? You win both ways. If your fallenness moves into your relationship with your child as well as your expert parenting, those two work together to create a family in which people are real and they're growing, but they're broken. It's like the gospel at home, okay? I call this the grace effect. And you can see it in your adult relationships. I hope you do. In your relationships with your spouse, your relationship with your friends. I hope you see those times in which you screw up and you really wrong somebody, but you're humble and you own it and you go, you're right, I really did hurt you. And you see their face soften. And then what happens to the relationship? It gets deeper. If you fail somebody and are humble and bring your heart to them and there's restoration, the relationship doesn't get worse because of your failure. The relationship gets better. Those who sin the most understand love the most. This is what it looks like to be a real person in your family with your kids. That's why I'm not just going to give you a bunch of parenting rules. We're going to talk over and over again about how to, how to manage this when you fail. Because like I tell you, I was an expert at that. All right. Another question parents have, an area that our kids need to do adulthood and live in God's image, has to do with limits. The handmaiden of love. We're talking about love first and now limits. How do I get my children to do what I say? You've been waiting for this one, right? (laughs) That's why you came. This one has to do with discipline, obedience, consequences. And we're going to talk about this one in depth, the whole talk tomorrow. So I'll be skimmy again. We're going to invest most of our time in the later questions. But just some thoughts. How do you get good, strong kung fu in your discipline? Well, here's the fundamental question every kid is asking. Why can't I not just do anything I want? Why do I have to do what you say? And what we'll talk about tomorrow is that there's two lame methods that we primarily use in order to answer these questions. One of them is coddling, again. Coddling is kind of where we beg and persuade. We don't have any real authority here. This is where we're like, hey, amigo, we talked about this, right? You know, like nobody's in charge. (laughs) Or number two, we move quickly, as we will say tomorrow, to control, and we try to force them to obey, make them obey. I'm sick of having to tell you, over and over, you know, control usually involves more intensity and all that kind of stuff. And those of you with toddlers and with teenagers know that the whole control bit is pretty difficult. And it would be great if kids just did what we said when we said so, right? But they're not, okay? Wake up. This is earth. Welcome. They're not going to, all right? So we can't coddle them into obeying, and we can't control them into obeying, ultimately. So what's a girl to do? Well, I'll tell you the secret that most people don't talk about, and I don't think most people don't. I think most people don't know it. It is this. Children aren't born 
with the ability to obey you. Okay? Any more than they were born to understand love or make sense of trust or of forgiveness or of emotional management or how to do their taxes. <laughs> they come pretty ill-equipped, okay? Kids don't know how to obey. So we're going to do something really wacky. We're going to teach them. We're going to teach our kids to obey. In fact, we're going to do so much teaching that we're going to call this approach to discipline tomorrow teaching discipline. And we're going to unpack it ad nauseum then. Let me give you just a little example to give you a vibe for it to maybe fuel any questions tonight or to um, get you set up for tomorrow, kind of where we're going to go. But think about what usually happens. Number one, we usually begin with telling our child to do something or not do something. Billy, quit bugging your brother at the dinner table. In other words, we issue a command, right? Now, what's going to happen next? Hashtag not first rodeo. Well, Billy is going to wait one Mississippi, two Mississippi, and then what? He's going to bug his brother again. I mean, you know, how could, how could he resist? He's sitting right there for crying out loud. Now, part of the reason that Billy does this is because Billy's a little terrorist. I'll grant that. I've met Billy, all right? But part of that is because all you have done so far is issue a command. And one of the things we'll talk about tomorrow is if you want some real power in your discipline and you actually want to teach your kids something about making wise choices that maybe will help tomorrow and certainly help in their adulthood, the next thing to do is not to intensify your command. Billy, I told you to not touch your brother and that's final. All right? We'll talk tomorrow about how if you want real power with Billy, you've got to get this secret of the universe. The only way that a child learns that we can teach them to make better choices, in other words, to obey, is for them to experience an event based on their choices. You see, if you think about it, children are concrete thinkers. And you guys take Psych 101, you read Piaget, Concrete Operations Thinking. That's why, you know, Sesame Street doesn't talk about the concept of threeness. Sesame Street talks about one, two, three, cookie, all right? Because children are concrete, all right? So what do they learn from? A lot of verbose words and explanations? No. Secret of the universe, children only really learn core stuff through what they experience in an event. Not your words, not your nagging, not your begging, not your threatening, okay? We've got to create an event. In other words, Billy, if you touch your brother again, if, then I'm going to escort you to time out, or I'm going to take your plate, and you can't eat anymore until the rest of us have finished eating. And now when Billy bugs his brother again, we keep our cool. We're not going to nag. We're not going to power struggle. No muss, no fuss. We're just going to follow through. And we're going to get up and we're going to take his plate. And he's probably going to like have a, a, a meltdown or refuse to go to timeout. And we'll talk about how to respond to that. But we have to follow through. Otherwise, we're big, fat liars, right? And you can be nice when you do this. 
In fact, it's better if you're nice. Oh, dude, I'm so sorry. Now I've got to take your plate. Yuck. And there's an event that Billy experiences here. And here's the key. This isn't y'all's war anymore. And what Billy learns is this isn't about me versus dad anymore. Dad doesn't have a dog in this fight anymore. Dad's not saying, I told you to quit. He's going, bug your brother all you want. You just lose your plate or you go to timeout. I don't have a dog in this fight. Okay? This is about what Billy thinks. This is about, Billy will learn. This is about whether my hiney is going to be in timeout or not. Or whether I'm going to have to eat later. An event, an experience, not a power struggle with dad. Okay? This is the only place that irresponsible people learn. Of any age, frankly. If this was a conference on how we grow, we'd apply it to acting out adults. Same principle. All right? So a lot of disobedience in kids is actually because what they're experiencing, the only thing they're experiencing is all your words back and forth and back and forth and never any real um, concrete event, okay? We're going to talk more about how that works tomorrow. Now, you attenders, zero to four-year-old, you're hearing me now going, oh, yeah, right, like that's going to work. My child goes limp-legged meltdown when I go out and try to stop them from playing with the lawnmower. And we have a showdown tantrum, like, how is that supposed to work? I hear your pain. We'll have to adjust the sum for littles. We're not, we're, we can't use straight-up teaching discipline with the little attenders. We're going to add more pieces with them. More restraint, more uh, redirecting, more praise. We're going to have to tweak it some. My mom was telling me the other day that her toddler was walking toward the electrical socket with a pair of tweezers in his hand, you know, headed for the slots, you know. And at that point, it's not good to say, you know, little Timmy, if you put the, the tweezers in the electrical socket, you're going to time out. No, you jump up and you run, you grab the tweezers, okay? So with, with the tenders, we'll have to tweak this some. But we're beginning to form a pattern for them and beginning teaching them um, about consequences. Um, Wit was sitting in his high chair when he was about two and a half and just kept taking food off of it and throwing it on the floor. Taking food off of it, throwing it on the floor. And I'm like, stop throwing your food on the floor. And he's like, right. So what am I going to do? Well, I've learned this new invention that's happened since I was a parent. They've got high chair trays that the top lifts off the tray. But the tray stays on the, the seat. How cool is that? Why wasn't that around in the 80s? So I said, well, I'm going to take your food. All right, now, he's not going to go, oh, now I understand it, Papa. But it's starting to build an if-then experience event for him. We're just starting to build that, all right? With school-age kids, it's a lot more straightforward. Susie won't get in her pajamas for bedtime. Don't fuss and fume. Put her in her pajamas in timeout, and they can come out when, you know, they're together. And that can be 30 seconds or 30 minutes. I don't have a taco on this enchilada platter, okay? Take all the time you need, Suze. Teenagers, we need an event for them too, right? That wouldn't be fair. wouldn't be right. We need to take care of them. They won't stop arguing. Well, of course, your first step as a parent of a teen is to say, I am not going to interact with you anymore about this. In other words, you can't control them. Stop arguing with me. You can control you. I am not going to participate in the argument anymore. Tennis game stops if you quit hitting the ball back. 
But for a teenager, it's tennis backboard. They're going to keep hitting it anyway, right? So they're going to keep arguing. So let's up the event. If you keep this up, I'm going to take your phone. An event. Not a power struggle, all right? So what we're doing with this is we're shifting the conflict from you versus your kids to them versus the event. It's the only thing, only place that kids learn. So we're not going to just require obedience. We're going to teach it. And that's the way adult life works too, remember? And that's where we're going with them. The goal is to get rid of them. I want them making wise choices as adults. God calls this wisdom. The ability to say, if you do this, it will lead to life. And if you do this, it will lead to death. Choose ye this day. It's what the Bible's all about. So what we're teaching here is wisdom, not power struggle. Right? Anyway, we'll totally unpack that tomorrow. Notice what we've got so far here is love and limits. Now, that's a conference in itself. Basically, you want to boil the whole universe down into two parts, relational universe. It'd be love and limits. I mean, talk about your marriage. We're close. We're one. We're connected. I disagree with you. Um, with children, I love you. I love you, but I can't let you hit your sister. I understand that you're angry. I care about that, but you can't hit, hit your sister. And we're always balancing and dancing between these two of love and limits. God calls them peace and righteousness, grace and truth, Mary and Martha. Um, I'm the Lord your God who led you out of, the, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Next line, you shall have no other gods before me. Love and limits. He dances them. In fact, Psalm 85, I think, says something about how within, within his character, peace and righteousness kiss. Peace and righteousness, love and limits. Anyway, we've gotten the basic two building blocks of the universe here. All right, next question. How do I get my kids to respect my authority? In other words, the ability to submit, and it is an ability, all right? This is deeper than the last one. This one's not just about obeying. Here we're really starting to enter into thinking about how we heal and grow and foster and, and fertilize and nourish our children's hearts. I believe core to a Christian view of parenting is that we have to ask more than how do we just make our children do right and do what we say. This was Jesus' message to the Pharisees. It's not just about the stuff you're doing. I'm interested in your hearts. So we as parents, I want to start giving you some categories for thinking about engaging their hearts. Now, at this point, we've got our work cut out for us because they've got little hearts that are as messed up as ours. Basically, the message of the Bible is that we're all born and we hold a board meeting and we elect ourselves chairman, right? That's what the Bible says. So regarding parenting, here's sort of the news flash. Your children are not willing participants in this process, okay? <laughs> it's not like they knocked on your door one day and said, yeah, um, I'm this self-centered, immature, childish person, and I'm looking for someone who will help me become wise and mature and make unselfish choices. Would you be my sponsor? You know, they didn't do that. They don't want what we're selling. 
Um, I mean, have you ever met a selfless kid? You know, oh, Dad, I think I'll just do it the first time you ask tonight. Because, I mean, I've given you so much hassle all day. You deserve it, man. Right, okay. So, <laughs> so um, what do we need to do? How do, we, how do we engage these hearts? Here's a way of thinking about it or starting to think about it. Yes, when we help our kids in parenting, part of our goal is to help them learn to grow up, be mature, develop skills, ready for adulthood. But as Christians, the other thing we have to do is help our children develop the ability to grow down, to bend the knee, to get off the throne in their lives. And we need to teach them that just like we're teaching them everything else. We can't just require it. We have to teach it. So how do we engage our kids' hearts in a way in which they learn to value authority? Somehow David got to the place to where he could say, I love thy law. Now, I can say I love thy grace. I love thy long-sufferingness. I love thy mercy. David says, I love thy law. How do we get our hearts to love authority like that and see its value? How do we do that with our kids? Well, like obedience and like love, they need to be taught submission. Again, I say taught. Um, a lot of authoritarian types kind of act like submission is just this thing to sort of require and expect out of children. All right? This one's big in Christian parenting circles, Christian parenting books. Beware. All right? Like there's this four-year-old walking around with this incredibly sophisticated heart ability to bend the knee, and by golly, they're just not willing to do it. Really? And we're like, well, when I was a child, all my parents had to do was say jump, and, and I, I went, boo. And that's why we're all in therapy. <laughs> um, but <laughs> hear me here. Submission is not just this thing to require. It is an internal capacity of the heart that we need to be taught. So one of the reasons we got to be so careful about the because we, I said so types, you know. A child having the ability to do it because I said so is actually the result of a lot of learning and a lot of maturity, not a baseline to begin with, okay? Besides, to most kids, and I've had kids tell me this, because I said so feels all the world like because I'm big and you're small, because I can make you do what I want you to do, because I win and you lose, okay? That's what they hear, and that is not growth producing. Besides, does God say because I said so? Uh, kinda, but mostly he says, do this because it's good for you. Don't do that because you'll die. He teaches wisdom. Anyway, so how do we teach submission? How do we teach growing down? How do we make that something that helps? How do we help their hearts make that shift? Well, here's a quickie little way to look at the super complex, nuanced thing. The term I like to use is we teach it by lovingly disappointing them. So two parts, loving and disappoint. Let's start with disappoint, just because that sounds fun, huh? All right, in order for someone to learn to submit, someone does need to alpha them, okay? Our culture of parents and the... My culture of parents and yours too. I mean, my culture of parents raised the millennials. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, 
We live in this position of, you know, um, I live but to serve, you know. Norm and I joke that we made the mistake initially with our children of thinking we could teach servanthood by modeling it. Think about that. Maybe if we were really great servants, then they'd go, wow, being a servant's cool. I want to be like that. No, they just turned into like, garçon, another one over here, you know. Didn't work, okay. So, um, <laughs> for someone to, 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 to learn to submit, you do need to disappoint them. What is thy bidding my master who's got to go away, all right? We need to have them recognize that we are the parents. This was, this was question number two. We're setting limits that, 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 that they don't run things and they have to face. No, basically kids will treat you like a box of cookies, all right? You give them one cookie, they'll eat one cookie. If you just leave the whole box in front of them, it's going to be, they'll, they'll eat you empty until you're just crumply paper and a desiccated skeleton in the desert if they sucked all the life out of you. That's what they'll do, all right? Now, part of this is because children suffer from a disease I call entitlement, kind of that sense of I deserve. And that's, you know, we're born with that. That's our sin nature, our fallenness. Those of you with teenagers know that teenagers actually have a word for this. I'm not sure exactly how to spell it, but this, this, this is the word. Anyway, so. Now, the only cure for entitlement is to begin by disappointing, which is what we talked about a second ago, and we'll develop more. Setting limits. You can't have what you want without there being some cost, so we have to disappoint. I remember one time when Bonnie was home, our youngest, the others were already at school, and she lived at the house by herself with us. Um, we have a couple of Bonnie alone in the house stories this weekend. But um, I, I like to cook, and I have a cappuccino maker. And one morning I was making a cappuccino, and she could hear the milk frothing upstairs. So I hear this little voice go, Daddy. You know, when she wants something, it's Daddy. Otherwise, I'd say, hey, Pops. You know, um, I said, yeah. She goes, will you make me a cappuccino? And I'm like, sure, babe. And waited a couple of seconds, and she said, and bring it to me in my bed. <laughs> I said, baby, I went to the bottom of the stairs and I said, if for no other reason that I can look your husband in the eye one day, no, I'm not bringing you a cappuccino in your bed, all right? So anyway, we have to disappoint, all right? Now, secondly, we have to do it lovingly if we're going to change their hearts, okay? Here's the secret. Think about it. Why is submitting so hard? You ladies, if we talked about submission in marriage, it's kind of an ick word, right? Why is submitting something we can feel cringy about? Why is it something we don't want to do? Why are your kids inclined? Think psychologically, emotionally for a minute. Why is submitting hard? Because it can be potentially humiliating. I win and you lose. Sorry. That's why sometimes your team would rather, you know, swallow a meteorite than obey you, okay? If I am going to bend the knee and you win and I lose, there's something humiliating about that. I resent it. It makes me feel less than and stupid, and I don't want it. And the rebel kind of kids will fight you on it. The, the, the compliant kids will just shut down and disappear. The sneaks will get all creative. We'll talk about that tomorrow. So here's the important question, $64,000 question of the night. What 
heals that humiliation to having to bend the knee. And if you don't heal it, the child won't heart learn. They, they might obey, but they're not going to heart learn. The way we heal that humiliation is the fact that we, their parents, are under authority too, and we get it. In other words, we lose sometimes too. Think about it. You are under authority too, right? You have to bend the knee just like your kids, right? You have to pay taxes. You have to do what your boss says. You have to detour on the interstate, even if you're in a hurry. You have to wear a mask in the grocery store, even if you don't want to. And it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. Don't, let me ask you, don't you hate that? Don't you hate bending the knee? So to prepare our kids' hearts to learn to submit, we're to say two things to our children about submission. We lovingly disappoint. We say, yes, number one, you got to do the stuff that I say to do because I'm the parent and there'll be consequences and your lifestyle around here might change. But number two, you know what? I'm also someone who's under authority just like you. And man, doesn't it stink? I know it feels so unfair. I completely get it. In other words, we lovingly disappoint. And that empathy, which is what this is, joining them in how much it stinks to have to submit, this is a psychological rule, spiritual rule. That empathy takes the sting of humiliation out of submission so kids can do it. Get it? So you attenders, you're carrying that little one out of the Walmart toy section, and they're kicking and screaming. And all you do at that age, you just add, I know, baby, I know you wanted to stay and play. I know it's so hard to have to leave. I'm so sorry, baby, but we need to. And you don't know it, but you're acknowledging to them the pain of submission. You don't know it, but you're actually uh, joining them. You're joining submission with love, not submission with humiliation. You're changing the rules, all right? With parenting age or de-parenting age, one of mine I remember, it was around the time that Bill Clinton got elected the first time. Um, I, I gave some limit, some consequence, and she turned around and looked at me and said, this is so not fair. You just get to make up rules and we have to follow them. And I kind of wanted to go, bing, it can learn. Yes, you finally get it. But I just had a call from my accountant that day who told me that uh, somebody who I did not vote for was about to make me have to spend a lot more in taxes. And I'm like, I, I, I don't, I don't want to spend more in taxes. He's like, sorry, you are. The code changed. And I was really not happy about it. So as she says this to me, I stopped. And I was going to be smarty to her. But I said, you know what? You're right. <laughs> You're right. There's something really hard about being a kid is you got these big people making rules for you all the time, and you just have to do it, and that does feel bad. That happened to me today. Somebody in authority over me told me about a rule change that I hate, and I can do absolutely nothing about it. So I'm with you. You're still in time out, but I get it. You hear the love and the limits, okay? Basic psychological spiritual law, by the way. This is a freebie. Not even about parenting. The only way to change a feeling or an inclination of the heart or something sinful in your heart is for it to be known and understood 
and connected with another person in the context of love and limits. Let me say it again. The only way we heal the heart part, I am angry. I am unforgiving. I don't want to submit. The only way we heal those emotional parts of us, the sinful parts of us, the heart parts of us, is for them to be known, seen, heard, and understood in relationship in the context of love and limits. This is why the Bible talks so much about confessing one to another. It's not to get it off your chest. It's because the only place these things heal is in relationship. I have a whole conference on how we grow, and we talk a lot about how until a part of you gets out of the isolation of aloneness and gets connected to someone else, it ain't ever going to grow. But all the each others in the New Testament are saying, you want to change and grow? Bear one another's burdens, rebuke the unruly, help the weak, be patient with all men. And it's talking about bringing those things to one another. I remember one of mine turned around. I ticked her off one night. She was a young teen, and she turned around and looked at me, and she said, I hate you. You're the meanest daddy in the world. And part of me wanted to get in the car and take her down to the Department of Human Services and introduce her to the meanest daddy in the world. You know, this is Roscoe. He can be your daddy now, okay? But I thought about this principle. And as, as I'll tell you later on in the conference, I struggle with my anger as a dad, and I was a jerk sometimes. And I stopped, and I said, you know what? I know that my anger is kind of bad sometimes, and I know I take it out on y'all sometimes. And um, I know I can feel like a mean dad, maybe the meanest dad in the whole world. Um, I care about that. I don't want to be that person. I would like in the future for me to t- for you to talk to me about it in a way that's not so, for you to not scream it at me. But I hear you. You're still in timeout, but I hear you. Okay, so we're not letting go of our limits here in the context of love and limits. She never said that to me again, ever. Now, what would have happened in her life if I had said, don't you ever talk to me like that again, young lady? Well, you know what? She really might not have to me or to anyone else. But where would that anger have gone? See, I'm wanting to broaden you out of the, how do we, you know, get them in the bathtub? That's easy. How do we help their hearts reflect the character of Christ? That's hard, but it's doable. This is what we're talking about. I want to address both the behavior and the heart. I want to address your successes and your failures. And let's take a break.